Welcome back to Three Black Docs. It's happy hour again. So go ahead and grab your drinks and we'll see you back here in two minutes. Well, hello and welcome. Hey, Dr. Karen. Hey. hey. Dr. What's happening? Hello. What's up? What's up? What's up? It's another Friday happy hour. And today yes. I'm super excited because we have another guest joining us. We have Jamil Rivers here with us tonight. I'm very excited. <laughs> so this is really cool because um, Jamil is... The, our second guest, but the first guest that we met because of our work with Three Black Docs and um, getting more involved with community organizations. So this is really cool. Um, we'll tell everyone how it happened, but first we have to talk about what we're having for drinks. It is happy hour, right? Mm -hmm. um, so Jamil, you're the guest, so you go first. <laughs> what, what are you unwinding with this Friday night? I have a nice, pretty virtual back to school cocktail. Okay. Celebrating the fact that I survived virtual <laughs> back to school. Here, here. So wait, what, what's in that? Tell us what's in here, this virtual here. back to school. This is um, some seltzer, uh, some grape juice, and some gin. All oh. right. There mm -hmm. you go. Love it. Well, here, here to that. Um, I don't think that I've survived back to school yet. I don't know what I'm doing, but... Um, I feel you. So cheers to that. <laughs> Dr. Karen, what you yeah. got tonight? So I'm actually drinking um, a little bit of peach whiskey. I have my Broncos, my Denver Broncos cup. You know, I'm not a Broncos fan, Denver but Broncos. you know, it's, 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 you know, you know, it's a convenient, convenient glass. So anyway, but I have some peach whiskey and a little like a splash of honey whiskey in there too. So this is just straight up whiskey tonight, y'all. Oh, hey. Wow. Hi. Wow. It's been a week. big week for Dr. Karen. Well, yes, one Dr. Of them Karen weeks. Yeah, she's got a celebratory <laughs> week. So, you know. Okay. Well, if we lose you halfway through, we'll know why. <laughs> we'll we'll uh, understand. <laughs> what you got going? So, unlike Jamil Rivers, who has survived virtual school, <laughs> I failed virtual school. <laughs> and those kids are back at school. Do you hear me? We oh, failed it. Failed it. Failed. It was a complete <laughs> and utter fail. I couldn't do it. So, <laughs> I wasn't gonna put your business out there. I, I, well, you know what? I mean, I felt you know she. I, I wow. just, I just had to tell the truth. I had she to got tell her the mad, truth. Right? Well, you know, you know I, I'm weak. She's weak. I'm weak. <laughs> so what you and, drinking? I hope you have something other than water in that. You cup know what? Then. Okay, so I have water with my polka dot straw. Oh lord! But you know what? Did you say? Oh lord! That was Sarah's lord. judgment. Lord. But you know what? Because I know how fantastic and how honored I am to be virtually next to Jamil Rivers, mm -hmm. I also have my popcorn oh, because okay. she is going to come with the information. Yes. And I already know that this is going to be good. So, mm. yes. <laughs> okay. and, and Dr. Z is known to have her snacks and to forget them earlier. <laughs> yeah, she, like, went, so, she almost went in on the chicken wings last I did. time. I, I, was, I, I kept it cute, though. Right. So anyhow, let's, let's get to it. So um, 
Jamil, I was I was excited. I um, I'll tell everybody how we got connected. Um, when I was in Philadelphia, I worked with an amazing social worker, Celeste Vaughn Briggs, um, social worker extraordinaire who I loved working with because she takes such great care of the mm-hmm. patients there in Philadelphia. I mean, she's just a rock star. And yeah. so we have kept in touch since I moved from Philadelphia. And we text pretty often, you know, and one day she texted and said, you guys should really connect. Uh, you know, she's been listening to the podcast and, you know, she's like, you guys, if you, if you don't know each other, you should know each other <laughs> because if you don't now your paths are going to cross, right. Because mm. you're so active, um, with advocacy and with yeah. really trying to work with, um, patients and helping people understand, um, what is going on with their cancer diagnosis, mm-hmm. and how to advocate for themselves and all of these things. So, um, you and I reached out, we chatted and funny story in our, we picked up the phone and you guys probably remember this, but we talked. And as I kind of said, okay, so, you know, tell me, what are you doing? This is what we're doing. And as you were telling me what you were doing, my jaw just kept dropping (laughs) lower and lower. And I'm like, what? This is absolutely incredible. So I want my jaw to drop. I hope she's going to tell us what she's doing. <laughs> she is. I'm going to stop talking now. So tell us, start off with just um, your cancer journey. Um, mm. Tell us a little bit about that. And we'll get to, um, you know, how that has worked in terms of your now becoming an advocate mm-hmm. um, and being so active in this space. Yeah, so I was diagnosed with um, metastatic stage four breast cancer in 2018. Um, Total shock, under the age of 40, no strong history or anything like that, no signs or symptoms um, to speak of. Um, My family uh, married three sons, and it was uh, the winter time. Everybody caught their colds. Um, Everybody had their turn. My turn came. Mine didn't go away. So I'm going to the doctor, I'm coughing, I'm hacking, um, you know, um, they told me they thought it was asthma. Then they told me, you know, it could be a cold and it was just lingering. And, you know, and then finally I asked um, for an ultrasound because um, I had a little pinch in my side. It wasn't really painful. It just felt like I slept wrong or something like that. Um, But appendicitis and gallbladder issues run in my family. And so I asked for an ultrasound and come to find out I have um, lesions in my liver. And so, well, how would I have lesions in my liver? Um, so really shocked after, you know, the breast biopsy and the testing and all of that, they confirmed that I had stage four breast cancer from the start spread all over my body, um, with the exception of my, uh, brain and my spine. And, you know, I had just went through a cancer journey with my husband because he's a colon cancer survivor. So we had three young children when I was diagnosed. My um, youngest was five. Mm -hmm. And so I was just like, how are, how are they, how do they have two parents with cancer? This is insane. And so I'm the primary breadwinner because after um, my husband's colon cancer ordeal, he became disabled um, and also had a liver transplant. Um, due to another um, illness called pulmonary cholangitis, sclerosing cholangitis. And so, you know, I'm holding it down, taking care of everybody. Everyone's on my benefits. And so um, I immediately thought I have to take care of my family. I have to do my research. Um, And I've got to figure out a way to still keep going and take care of my family, which is 
um, indicative of so many black women, you know, we're mm. like, yeah, <laughs> we're holding mm-hmm. it down. You know, we've got to make it work, make a way out of no way. Um, and I just didn't want to roll the dice with, um, you know, with the resources out there and things like that. So I was surprised doing my research that the disparities with black women and breast cancer were so high. And especially when you think about Philadelphia, because Philadelphia is like, you know, the epicenter of innovation and research and, and all of that. So I was just really shocked. And so not just for my own personal um, survival, but I thought, you know, let me figure out what I need to know and educate myself about my breast cancer and what are these barriers and issues that could Mm -hmm. potentially make me more vulnerable to disparities. And so in that time, just doing my research of not just the medical aspects of breast cancer, but all those other things that you have to add into your life and structure in your life to make sure that you're on the right path and understanding, you know, that you can't automatically trust what your doctor is telling you, you know? (laughs) So I was, you know, I was kind of raised by two Black Panthers in a sense. So, <laughs> like this, All right, right, right. Okay. You know? yes. So, of course, and uh, you know, I work in the education space. You know, I work for on the CFO of a large organization where we're. That's pretty much our focus is in equities in education. So, mm-hmm. of course, I'm you know knowledgeable about that when it comes to health equity and so you know i had to make sure i was knowledgeable about clinical trials the genomic testing and genetic testing and standard of care and my specific subtype of breast cancer so that when they're presenting these options to me i know i can really go toe to toe and ask my questions and you know really make sure that they're not just give the run around and you know cuz uh-huh. you run into issues where you know, um, due to unconscious bias, there's some medical professionals that just might not really be all hands on deck or really trying Mm -hmm. to go to bat for you. So Mm -hmm. I had to make sure that I had my information and I was empowered with that information. So that way I could be assertive and make sure that I had all the information for myself. So I began to work with Living Beyond Breast Cancer. I went through their advocate training as I'm going through my breast cancer care. I ended up getting one year of chemotherapy I wasn't able to take off because, you know, my insurance is through my employer. I'm the primary, so I worked through chemotherapy for that year. And, um, you know, I started getting really involved with advocacy with Metaviver and Susan G. Coleman, and it just started growing from there. And also while I was, you know, just going to work, taking care of my family, you never know who you're inspiring, just putting one foot in front of the other. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. And um, all of a sudden, you know, um, women would come into my chemo room and say, hey, you know, you seem to be doing all right. You know, can, you know, we connect and you could tell me what you're doing. And it just kind of grew from there where I was up to 50 women that I'm coaching and mentoring, wow. you know, so um, and then I ended up creating like this curriculum in a sense, where it's like, okay, these are all the different components of that comprehensive cancer care. And I um, drafted one that was specifically for Black women, because Mm -hmm. I do believe that Black breast cancer is its own separate subtype. It's its own, you know, it needs its own specialization, so to speak. So then I thought um, about a year ago, I said, well, I can't, you know, my husband's looking at me like I'm crazy. I'm talking to women all throughout hours of the night. (laughs) Eight o'clock on a Friday. Right. right. (laughs) Well, no, I mean, women were calling me a crisis, you know, and so um, 
I went to Living Beyond Breast Cancer and I said, well, you know, how about we have something that's specifically for Black women, you know, or Black people impacted by breast cancer? And, you know, we could treat it where, you know, because there are unique challenges that Black people have when they are impacted by breast cancer. And you don't know what you don't know. And I met so many um, Black people that had their breast cancer experience, in particular Black women. And they were saying, oh, I wish I would have known that at the time. And I was really lucky because, um, you know, I just automatically knew I had to do my research going in. I Mm. didn't want to necessarily trust that this is what I should accept and also made sure that I had a second opinion and research doctors. Good for you. Yeah. Yeah. um, But I meet so many people who they wish they would have known that from the beginning. Right. Yeah. And so we ended up um, now uh, creating a symposium just for black people that with breast cancer. Um, and so it is next month in the month of October, it was supposed to be in person, but then COVID hit. <laughs> so we shifted mm. and it is now, um, you know, virtual, but what's fantastic is that all of the programming is customized so that it is specific towards you know, and focused on a black person's experience with breast mm-hmm. cancer and what they need to know because everything for us is different. You know, I mean, the yeah. disparities, there's so many contributing factors, but, um, you know, there's so many just, our breast cancer is just completely different. And this yeah. is a way to make sure that um, it is a targeted support um, workshop and education and information specifically for us. Yeah, and that's wonderful. So your your diagnosis is so unique because you yeah. had de novo, meaning upfront mm-hmm. had metastatic disease, and yeah. again your symptoms were fairly nonspecific, mm-hmm. right? So you had very cold, scary, maybe cough, right? So yeah. so what was interesting though is that you still advocated for yourself. Talk a little bit about how you advocated, you know, and how you were able to move the needle and how you were able to say, I need an ultrasound, give me one. Because there are so many black people who Mm -hmm. are are misdiagnosed or go undiagnosed for Mm -hmm. weeks, months, sometimes even years, believe it or not. So talk Mm -hmm. a little bit about that, how you advocated for yourself. Mm-hmm. Well, I just knew that it, this just wasn't a cold and this just wasn't asthma. I mean, I was literally coughing minute after minute for like six months. <laughs> it's mm. just like, this is a kid just being, you know, they're giving me an asthma pump. They're thinking it's whooping cough or maybe it's another cough. And I just said, you know, this has to be, you know, I wasn't going to just accept like, okay, this is my life. We've got to get to the root of the problem. And so asking for um, the ultrasound, I really just was thinking, well, it could be, you know, I'm feeling this little pinch here. It could be appendicitis. It could be, you know, I just want to get to the root of what's going on. And so um, I I think I'm blessed where I'm not, um, I don't have an issue with speaking my mind or being assertive. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know? So even when I went for my, you know, when I, it was confirmed that I had uh, metastatic breast cancer, you know, I'm thinking, okay, I got to read up on the NCCN guidelines. I've got to read about the National Cancer Institute. And, okay, and wait, I, I'm sorry. I texted you. To, remember, I texted you and I was like, she's incredible. We have to wow. have yeah. I'm with you, but I, the end. Yeah. I was like, don't even ask yeah. me. She's going to show up one day. <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> 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 and guidelines. Wow. 
Yeah, I mean, I had to know. Like, I, I felt like there was just no standard of care, really. Um, every cancer center was doing all types of different things. So I was really thinking, okay, well, you know, the median survival is so, um, you know, dire. I'm just thinking, what can I do to try to buy as much time as possible, mm. right? And so I was reading about metastatic de novo and the differences as far as drug responses and then okay. the best um, treatment when you do have, you know, breast cancer that spread all over your body and, um, you know, what all those options were. And so right. talking to um, the doctors, I didn't want anything, you know, I'm trying to do whatever I can to get rid of the breast cancer. Once I read that you could reach no evidence of disease, I was like, that's my goal. That's my, right. <laughs> that's my target. Mm-hmm. And so um, I just thought that not just the medical, but also nutrition, um, exercise, mm-hmm. everything that I could do to get to that point. Um, and so once I saw like all the data and statistics that's associated with that, I said, well, that's what I'm going to shoot for. And right. it was interesting because they said, well, you know, you don't have to stay on it that long. And I said, well, let's just keep going. I'm used to this by now. <laughs> <laughs> let's just keep going until they're all just gone. You know, let's just, you know, just keep using the chemo. And then after a year, they said, well, there's nothing left to you know, they <laughs> can't do anything. Like, there's nothing to follow. Please right. take this pill. Right. So they said, we can switch now to the targeted therapy right. and also the aromastase inhibitor. Right. And I also um, got my ovaries removed, you know, mm-hmm. because my breast cancer is hormone positive and oh, really okay. just tried to shut it down, just shut it right. down where there's just no activity whatsoever. Um, and so, since, you know, it's been two years, I'm still no evidence of disease. And just trying to stay on this track for as long as possible. But I also have that game plan for, you know, what's next if I do go and I get a bad scan. You know, Uh I I think that's important so that you're not overwhelmed and you can kind of think about, okay, well, what's next? You know, because with metastatic breast cancer, you're in treatment for the rest of your life. So you always have to think about, okay, what's next? You know, and making sure that it's the most effective treatment that you can shoot for. You have brought up so many so pearls. So many things. So many pearls. We have to take a break. We'll be right back. Like what you hear? Make sure you rate and subscribe. Three Life Docs is available wherever you get your podcasts. And, and there are so many things to jump back on. One of the things, so and things. Dr. Karen brought it up a little bit, you know, really only about 6 to 10% of people yeah. will be di- diagnosed up front with metastatic mm-hmm. breast cancer. But one of the things that um, we know is that there are people with early stage breast cancer, you know, some of them will recur as, w- as well. Mm-hmm. And so you mentioned Metaviver. Yeah. And I wanted you to talk a little bit more about that and what you all are doing for the metastatic breast mm-hmm. cancer patients. So, I mean, if you think about it, the only way that we're really going to stop the deaths from breast cancer is be due to b- metastatic breast cancer research. Mm-hmm. And to me, it is just crazy when you think about for the past 40 years, the methodology for um, breast cancer has been well, let's just find it early. Find it early. Let's deal with it. You know, the earlier, the better. Let's nuke it as much as we can. But now we know that you, everything can be perfect. And you right, can you can still, do everything right. Right. 
And you're still going to have that 35% chance exactly. of becoming metastatic. So we're really not dealing with what's killing people. Mm-hmm. We're just buying time and extending the inevitable in a sense. So I say we should, you know, learn from the lessons from HIV AIDS, right? Mm-hmm. They didn't mm-hmm. they, they didn't say, let's not worry about that AIDS stuff. Let's just focus on HIV and let's hope that it never gets to that point. You know, right. they, <laughs> they focused on what's killing you. So right. I think that now that we know the research has bared it out that we need to focus on metastasis and targeting what is making that cancer thrive and grow and spread all over the body. And so Metaviver, 100% of every dollar that comes in for Metaviver is specifically towards metastatic breast cancer research. And it actually benefits early stagers too. If you look at all the, you know, research in the past 10 years, you know, it's benefit even in the eight, past eight months. It's right, <laughs> right. It's benefiting, you know, earlier stagers and less invasive. You know, um, less toxic to the body. When we're talking about chemotherapy, you can now wait quite a while before you even start exploring those options. And so, mm-hmm. I think we really have to get our um, breast cancer research to at least the point where we're investing 50% in metastatic breast cancer research, because otherwise, what are we doing? You know, like if you want to save lives, you have to stop the deaths and you don't die from breast cancer in your breast. You die from when it spreads all over your body. So that's where we should be putting our focus and money into. Now, Jamil, can you talk a little bit about that? Because, um, you know, now you're talking about clinical trials. So the Mm -hmm. first point you made is absolutely correct. When a new drug comes out, Mm -hmm. the first place they test it is in patients that have metastatic disease because there are tumors that can be followed Mm -hmm. by imaging to say if the drug is working or not. So everything starts in the metastatic setting and then, as is proven, moves down, right, Right. to the earlier stages. Mm -hmm. But talk about clinical trial participation, because Mm -hmm. as you know, by now, there is a huge mistrust (laughs) of um, understandably so. so. (laughs) But, you know, we feel like and I feel and I think that you would agree that for people to get um, access right to the cutting edge treatments, yes. um, to treatments years before they're going to be um, approved, right. right? You have to participate yes. in the trials. Also, as we know, you know, with Black people with cancer, when it comes to clinical trial participation, because there's not that many you know, then it becomes an issue of, well, is this, you know, what's the representation? And then when, you know, you're using it, what are the side effects, the toxicities, those, those sorts of things. So Mm -hmm. we, we talk a lot about um, how to break, how to, how to kind of get through the distrust that we rightfully have Mm -hmm. up against the need to actually participate. Right. The way, you know, so can you talk a little bit about that? What what have you found when you talk to people like other breast cancer patients yeah. about this? Well, I think once they ex- I explained to them that um, I've run into so many medical professionals that are functioning as gatekeepers in a sense, right? And they're not offering mm-hmm. clinical trial information to mm-hmm. black patients, right? They're yes. saying, oh, well, that black woman is single. She's not going to be compliant or, mm. you know what? She's not married. She doesn't have any kids. Like, what am I going to, you know, get share this clinical trial information for. And so what I explained to um, the women I work with is that's the platinum package. 
That clinical trial is the platinum package, and they don't want you to have that platinum package. But if you <laughs> get that platinum package, it is everything, all the bells and whistles with all the features. It is fully loaded, right? Well, because you get, all- get followed closer. Yes, you get usually. all. You get the cutting edge treatment. You get all the monitoring. They really want to make sure that you are doing good, right? And the level of care that you get with a clinical trial is the platinum package. So that's what you should, you know, that's what you should actually strive for. If you can get into that clinical trial and now with the most, with the innovations that they have with immunotherapies and targeted therapies and genomic testing, they could find specifically what your cancer is feeding off of and mm-hmm. stop it, stopping it in its tracks. So basically you're taking the air out the tires and the gas out the car. And so if you can take the gas out the car and the air out the tires, guess what? Your cancer has no way to get around. So for the fact that that platinum, platinum package is available and really some folks don't want you to have it, mm. you know? Wow. <laughs> so wow. to get it, you know? And yes, there is mistrust. I, I mean, I don't think that you should just completely rely and trust and, you know, in your doctors. It's trust and verify, right? Right. Mm-hmm. You know, like me. And what's interesting about clinical trials also, because of the low participation in this country, um, with my particular cancer center, they gave me a menu of options, right? They said, well, here are all the different. I'm like, well, how am I supposed to know which drug I'm supposed to? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So I had to actually look up some studies in Europe that were studying, you know, women in Africa, West Africa, because I know that's where I'm, you know, where I descend from. And when you, a lot of the drugs, they um, affect black women differently. And the reason why we don't know that is because of the lack of participation in clinical trials, which as an advocate, I review proposals. And I also make sure that when I'm taking part in a clinical trial design, that your, you know, recruitment and enrollment should be reflective of the community. So you need to have more than 3%. We're talking about 15%. (laughs) And you need to have a plan as far as barriers, transportation, Mm -hmm. and how to have, you know, that engagement in the community. But I always explain to um, the Black women I work with when they're concerned about clinical trials, that's the platinum package right there. That's the one you want to get to. And a lot of people don't want you to be a part of it. So I'm always like, well, if you don't want me to have it, but that's what I should get, that's what I'm going to get. You know, I want to get the platinum package. But so, Jamil, you are saying all kinds of amazing things. The the (laughs) thing is, is that you are an educated woman who... Mm also then could go and educate yourself even further about some of these Mm -hmm. things. But you took the time to do that. We know that there are so many individuals, particularly in the Black community, who, Mm -hmm. number one, may not even know how to start that process. So tell us a little bit. I know that the work that you're doing is really to try to educate. How can we inform? Because frankly, we know, like you said, not only are people not being offered clinical trials, but they might not even be in an area where clinical trials are being yeah. offered, right? Yeah. They may be going to a cancer center or a cancer treatment place where there's no clinical trial. So talk yeah. a little bit about how for individuals who are 
I'm gonna say lay individuals because girl, you're right up on there. Look, you're right up here. Like, you know, so I don't consider <laughs> oh, you a lay you. individual. But so tell us a little bit about how you're breaking it down and how yeah. are you helping individuals who may not come from your background, which we need mm-hmm. to talk about. We're gonna do that in a minute. But but tell like how are you breaking that down? How are you helping individuals to really take hold and to not only think about clinical trials as an option, but mm-hmm. then to advocate for themselves? Right. Biggest thing that I do when I'm working with um, patients and when you think about um, the symposium that we're doing that really meets people where they are. Right. And we're breaking it down. So it's not where their eyes are not going to gloss over that they understand specifically what type of breast cancer they have. What is the subtype? What is feeding that breast cancer? What are those important aspects that they need to know? Um, just what are the characteristics of their breast cancer, right? And so that's the one-on-one part that I'm glad that you guys kind of provided as far as the opening for the Knowledge is Power Symposium, so thank you. But it's really just talking it and making it plain, you know, just letting them know this is what it is, this is the biology of cancer, this is how it functions, this is how it spreads in the body. So getting that aspect down. Then we talk about treatments and what treatment options are available, whether or not if you're early stage or metastatic and what that consists of and what are those side effects and insurance concerns and financial toxicity and all those other things that you have to think about and really touching on those um, contributing Mm -hmm. factors that can make you, you know, I look at it as like a train, right? You're on that track for that continuum of care and there's things that can kind of get in the way and take and steer you off track. So childcare, transportation, PTO time, um, Mm -hmm. job concerns, insurance concerns. And so not just thinking about the treatment options, but how are you going to structure your life so that you can be on this long journey because it's long, you know, even if you're yeah. an early stager, it's not over. Right. You know, they say bring the bell, but no, you still got a ways to go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So just explaining it and, and answering all those questions and being available. And so with my nonprofit that I launched, the Chrysalis Initiative, it's pretty much giving the resources. So, you know, all patient navigators and oncology social workers are not rock stars like our mutual friend Celeste. You know, some of them struggle a bit with connecting with Black women or not um, categorizing them as aggressive or problematic or putting them in a corner or just shutting down or or considering that they're non-compliant, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Stop with that word. (laughs) The labeling. Don't say non-compliant because you're going to get Karen all... That's all around up. Me too. Me as well. I don't like it either, but I just sit back because I know yeah, we get all <laughs> but so did exactly. y'all hear she said she said chrysalis yes butterflies I'm all about butterflies and I, I love yeah. the metaphor I right think, yeah I mean yeah. You go through this transformation yes, and I felt it's like mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. but we're gonna get yeah. to the other side you yes. know yeah yes. Um, yes so so can I ask because you mentioned I know that the work that you do is around education but that's not 100 percent background tell us a little bit about who you are because i think that may help inform mm. how you've because you literally have developed like you said a curriculum and mm-hmm. it's lo- it's logical tell us a little yeah. bit about your background personally if you don't mind um well you know i am the oldest of three girls my dad it was a longtime teacher in philadelphia in community where there's a lot of inequities my mom um, she's a dentist in low-income community. So it was always instilled in us, know your history, know your value, know your worth, mm-hmm. know your history, right? Um, and also make sure that you're reaching back. Both of my parents grew up really poor. 
no public assistance back then, you know, and my mom, right. you know, was able to go to Temple University, go to Temple University Medical School, become a dentist and have this fantastic career, you know, growing up with, you know, 20 siblings in, you know, South Jersey. Yes. And no public assistance. Two zero. Two zero. Two zero. You know, no. What you talking about, Willis? Right. You know, time you had 20 siblings when we talked on the phone the first time. Right. <laughs> welcome, Jamil. Welcome. I can. <laughs> and okay. so it, I, I just think it's amazing when I think about my grandmothers and, you know, just what they were able to accomplish with all those children. Yes. Mm. Um, and so just knowing your history, knowing your value, knowing the history of this country, you know, knowing that some people, they're just not going to rock with you. They don't even consider you to be valuable. Right. And so I, this is what I explained to, you know, white medical professionals, their unconscious bias is racism. When you're functioning as a gatekeeper and you're like, eh, you know, you're 35, you know, you're presenting with symptoms. I'm not going to take the time to do any type of diagnostic workup or have you roll in here, you know, but if it was a white woman, it's all hands on deck. So I think like, um, you know, there has to be accountability metrics in place. And so that's what um, we advocate for and just to change the status quo. Right. And so um, I actually am a numbers person. I was always really good at math. I wanted I studied pre-law initially, but then I saw that I'm not good with the whole, um, you know, plea deals and abusing people that are already. Um, in crisis and distress. So I went into finance and have been working in for-profit finance and nonprofit finance for the past 20 years. And so now I work as a nonprofit CFO full-time. And I have um, my husband who he is, when I met him, he was a financial analyst. <laughs> and uh, we've been together for 15 years. Now he um, has his own e-commerce website and he's into meditation and all that. So that's part of his cancer wellness journey. Um, and then we have three children and um, all boys. And so that's pretty much who I am. I'm like the political science nerd, love math and, you know, and all of that. And I, I, I think about my great grandmother when people always say like they're shocked about, you know, my experience. And she would always say how you do one thing is how you do everything. And so when my family heard about all this, they were just not surprised. They're just like, that's just how Jamil is. <laughs> you know, Thank like, you. Doing, Thank you for sharing. Yeah, doing too much. So. Yeah, no, no. It's incredible. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. And I was speechless then and I'm speechless now. Um, wow. <laughs> we are going to take a break. Uh, we're going to pause for the cause just for a minute. Three Black Dots is not intended as medical advice. All opinions are our own. Three Black Dots is produced by Wings Productions. Like what you hear? Make sure you rate and subscribe. Three Black Dots is available wherever you get your podcasts.